0: Welcome to The Tech That Connects Us, a podcast dedicated to the stories of leaders in the technology industries that bring us closer together, specifically content and media, satellite and news space, connectivity and cybersecurity. Your hosts are me, John Clifton, Laurie Scott and Will Trenchard, the founders of Nuco, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm focused on these exact industries. We love being a part of them and we're excited to share these stories with you. Welcome to the Tech That Connects Us. Your hosts today are me, John Clifton, co-founder of NuCo, alongside Tim Meredith, one of our lead consultants in content and media. And we're delighted today to be joined by Nuno Sanchez. Hailing from Portugal, he joined Portugal Telecom in 2002 before becoming part of the team at Zon, now Noj, where he spent nearly seven years leaving as their product development director. From there, he joined Vodafone and was a pivotal figure in creating and rolling out Vodafone TV globally, arguably one of the biggest TV projects of the last five years. At the start of 2020, he joined Kaltura where he leads their telco and media practice. Welcome to the show, Nuno.
1: Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to be here, uh, Tim. Good to uh, meet you also. Thank you for the invite. It's uh, uh, It's a very unique day for for us at Kaltura. Pleasure to be here uh, in in the celebratory mood that we are. And thank you for the
0: invite. uh... Our pleasure, our pleasure. Um, So to get the story started, we kind of like to go right back to the beginning, I guess. So how and why did you get into the the broadcast and TV industry?
1: So, Honestly, it was a bit of a um, coincidence, to tell the truth. I started my career uh, doing some consulting jobs, first in some consulting and then in Portugal Telecom in the consulting group. And I just happened to sort of, uh, I had an appetite for technology topics. Um, Media was the fast-growing topic at the time. Uh, The the cable deployments were running strong. Broadband was starting to be deployed at scale. And I just ended up gravitating there. And I, I just found that the... The mix of technology and business was really my space of uh, 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 what I felt comfortable, and I just kept digging deeper and deeper into that, and uh, here I am. That took me step by step, deeper and deeper into the pay TV part.
0: Fantastic. Very good. So uh, passing over to Tim for a few more questions around the past.
2: Yeah, so you, you've you worked at three large operators and now one of the biggest vendors in, in TV um, and video. Um, is there a period in your career that you would single out as being the most enjoyable?
1: Yeah, I think I think that I, I've been very privileged throughout all my career to have a lot of fun while working. And uh, uh, that, uh, that for me is still the defining element and how I make my decisions is am I going to have fun doing this? The definition of what fun is has changed with years. Uh, it moved more from... I would say personal achievements and getting this kick out of doing things to now which is more uh, getting the pleasure of getting people to build up and them having the pleasure of building and putting all the pieces together and that mm-hmm. has changed but i would say the most enjoyable period was the period when i launched my first tv platform at the uh, uh, zone at the time we had just created a brand the company had just been spin off and we from the ground up built uh, iris which was a product that we designed it was groundbreaking and we're a super young team no one had done that before we felt we were the kings of the world to do anything uh and the, that pleasure you get from just going out one day and you see the, the the product you've built in advertising all over the country and you get home and your friends talk about it at dinner that 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 sense of achievement of you're impacting the world a TV setup box at the time. So so that that was that was quite unique, I have to say.
2: fantastic. and 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 from that, who or what would you say has been sort of your the biggest influence during your career?
1: so i I, I was very lucky throughout my career to have what I think is the most important asset anyone. Uh, who has I would say high potential and has a strong attitude towards work and have which is I had very strong mentors Mm. I had people who I worked with that I deeply deeply respected and I felt I always had to exceed myself to to reach their uh, the level at which they operated and the expectations they had of me Uh, and uh, uh, and there are several of them I can name them uh, one by one but uh, they know who they are. And these were the people I worked with uh, through in Zon, uh, uh, in Vodafone. Some of them cross over from Zon to Vodafone. Uh, And I have to tell you, most of these people who are part of this story are today the leading people running uh, the pay TV businesses across Europe, in the UK, in Germany, in Portugal. Uh, And this sort of uh, what I call the the class, uh, the class of 07 of uh, the Portuguese pay TV industry uh, that went to pretty much uh, uh, run European pay TV in the decade to follow uh, was pretty much a one of a kind and I was privileged to work with all of them and to keep them still today has people I can reach out and get advice and mentorship from.
2: Fantastic, fantastic. And do, and do you still find yourself going back to them again even even Absolutely. now for advice? and yeah?
1: Absolutely. It's harder that half of us are competitors now. Yeah.
2: So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Sometimes in but, quite oblique conversations about things yeah, that you can't uh, talk about.
1: Yeah, the conversations always end up with like, we shouldn't be talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> let's see if okay. I don't. I, now I don't work in telecom anymore, so I don't, I don't, I don't need to worry about this.
2: <laughs> Perfect. Um, and obviously, you know, with with big recent news in, in in mind, what what achievement would you say you're you're most proud of to date?
1: I think the achievement I'm most proud to date is that I've been able to build a cohort of people and teams that have been happy to land over and over their careers, their jobs, and their uh, dreams to, mm. to the path I've tracked across multiple companies. There are multiple people who I've had the privilege to work over the last 15 years who they keep, we keep running path in different roles, in different positions. And uh, anytime I'm uh, starting a new project or taking a company in a new direction, these are the people who ring me and say, how can I be part of this? how can i how can I continue the work we've done together and And that's the biggest asset I've built in my career are the people who if i if I pick up the phone and say, "Do you want to be part of this?" I'm quite sure they will say yes and they will be happy. Um, so with that asset, uh, I am actually quite confident that whatever the project I set up to do next, uh, I have a good chance of success because I have this uh, army of uh, uh, of uh, team members and army of people who I trust uh, uh, to back me up. Yeah. That builds up every day and that grows as, as we onboard more people uh, across the multiple businesses I've worked over the years.
2: Perfect. So uh, you've got you've got a deep bench. If I was to risk a sports metaphor, of which yeah. I'm fully unqualified to make, but I've heard <laughs> other people say it.
1: Yes, I will agree while being fully unqualified to agree.
2: <laughs> Great, <laughs> good. As long as we're all on the same level. Great. And um, so we've heard about sort of your your career and progression and, and look back at the past. So that that brings us to the present, John. Thank you. So
0: I've got a couple of questions, but obviously this week has been um, has been a different week uh, for the organisation that you work for. So for any of our listeners who don't know, uh, Kaltura, the organisation that Nuno works for, um, went public this week. So um, just share a couple of words on uh, on the feeling of of you know the business going public and you know the the journey that you've been on and what it means to everybody involved.
1: Absolutely. So uh, first thing I there, there's There's a set of arcane rules about what we can and cannot say immediately pre and post IPO. So I'm sure I'm going to break a few and I'm going to get hit by our legal team the day after this airs, uh, but still (laughs) risking that. Um, So Kaltura is a 12-year-old company that started from a vision of... uh, when YouTube was being bought by Google, it starts from the vision of saying the kind of capabilities that exist there should be made available to every company and every organization. And video will be a huge part of any workflow. And, and that vision that today, when we articulated, people just look at us and say, "Wow, well, yeah, that's rather obvious and you guys are doing it. So I'm glad you're so well positioned. And these days, post-pandemic, it's even more obvious that you need to have video doing everything. But if you think back 15 years ago and uh, 13 years ago, that was a completely groundbreaking thing. You couldn't record videos on your phone. You couldn't do pretty much anything. Uh, And and what Cultura has achieved, I think, and what what this getting into the market recognizes is that that vision that was born that day has materialized into what is solving the the, the resolution of an enormous real problem for businesses, for people, for organizations worldwide. Um, That Cultura is now, because it did see the problem 12 years, 13 years ago, uniquely positioned to resolve. Getting into the Nasdaq, having such a successful IPO, uh, having such a successful recognition of the market in the first day of trading, I think it all just validates not just the journey and the vision, uh, uh, but it also validates the direction that we're going into the future. And it gives us this enormous sense of responsibility towards uh, the teams, our teams, our customers, and now our public investors, that we are the caretakers of this vision. We need to take it forward, explore it to its full potential. Uh, and now more than ever, have the means uh, and the will. Uh, the will has always been there now, more means to achieve that vision uh, and to bring
0: it to its full, to its full potential. Yeah, fantastic and a, a fantastic moment for everybody involved. And particularly as you mentioned, you know, before we came on air, um, especially some of the owners and those that have been involved in it for such a long time. So really fantastic achievement. Um, the industry has been rapidly evolving, um, you know, over the last few years and, and there's no doubt that COVID has, has really accelerated a whole variety of technology, but I think video and Zoom, um, you know, just as a video platform being a real, real um, impetus of, of drive within, within video. So what are your feelings on the current state of the video industry? I honestly think we're just starting. So I think I think that the
1: point we're at with video is very similar to the point we were with the internet in 2000s, which is the video specialists are thriving, including Kaltura, um, Zoom. Uh, but the truth is, most of the industries have not videofied yet. So, uh, and that's, I think something culture is uniquely positioned to leverage and to accelerate. But that's where I think we are, John. If you go back at 98, 99, pure online companies were using the internet and basing the business model on that. But if you're running a shoe store, the internet was immaterial for you. If you're running a factory, the internet was immaterial for you. And I think that's where we are with video. Where we are with video is that the wave of videofication of the whole uh, world is just starting. COVID accelerated dramatically. It moved education, communication. So it just moved all of these sectors. But there's so much more. There's pretty much very few things. That, just imagine every interaction you have today that does not require the passage of a physical good from one end to the other. And that can be video file, uh, a doctor's appointment, mm-hmm. uh, uh, surgery in the limit with uh, 5G technologies, overlaying video. So there's so much places where you still you're still not there and you could just be, and you're not there because the processes haven't been worked out, the technology in some spaces, we're still talking to a screen instead of having a real presence experience. Um, but there's so much, as you start adding things like, uh, 3D printing, 5G. If you start putting the big data, AI, video, you start putting the convergence of all of these things. And tomorrow, you might just uh, go to a place and you want to buy a physical good. And you interact with a salesperson, and that physical good gets printed next to you in a 3D printer, just because the, it's a piece of intellectual property plus melted plastic. So how how all these things will this thing happen uh, is still up uh, in the air. And the next 10, 20 years will bring a dramatic revolution. So I think we're just starting.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I think it's very, very exciting. And um, again, kind of focusing on that kind of last sort of eighteen-month period or so, where you know we've all found our, our lives drastically changed. What do you think is um, is is the biggest lesson that can be learned, or the biggest lesson that you've learned during these last eighteen months?
1: I think I've learned a couple of really important ones, maybe in different layers. I would say from the way we look at the world. This, for me, we still—I don't think we still have figured out all the impact of this period. I think we're still in the in the uh, euphoria of the change and the peak. I think we're we're almost like we're almost about to get to V Day in World War II. We're like we know it's getting to an end. We know this. We think the world's going to change, but we still don't understand the new world order to come. Uh, and I think we're living our. Uh, Uh, Great Depression, World War II, uh, 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 the the moment Industrial Revolution. We are living a moment that's changing history and we have no clue what's about to come because every projection we do can lead us to very different places. Uh, I think this is a groundbreaking moment equivalent to the Industrial Revolution for the reason, simple reason. 200 years ago people moved from the fields into the city and with that they defined modern society. And now we've broken a connection that is the core of, of how society operates, which is work and physical location are connected. We've built city road, means of transport, we've been built tax systems, we've built discriminatory pay practices around this principle and that all crumbles. It, it simply stops making sense now. Um, and uh, I think that the change to come, if you think about 12 months or it doesn't matter, but if you think about 10 years, you'll see that nothing will define the change of society like this. And, and I think that creates huge opportunities for cultura, for individual investors, for careers of people. And processing all of this, I think, will be the most interesting thing in the next couple of years. So I just think this is a pivotal moment in society and not a bleep, uh, not a blip. And I call it now, I think it's a trend, we went from the country to the city and now to the beach. So, and let's see what all the (laughs) the implications of that will be. Um, uh, From from a managerial perspective, uh, uh, for me, I think the biggest challenge was that the way I saw my role, I've been a a road warrior for seven, eight years, 100 flights a year, uh, and just being with people, solving problems, convincing them, managing crisis, and that all the first reaction was get onto a plane, meet them face to face. Uh, have that uh, empathy and that connection. Um, And and the hardest thing to do is solve the crisis or the moment by connection. And I think Mm -hmm. the biggest challenge that when we all became faces behind the screen was How do you learn to do that? What's the role of the different types of communication? What's the role of the impromptu call of the text message of the video? How do you redefine all of this? And for me, that was exceedingly important. I think especially supporting the teams during periods that were quite difficult for people with kids, for people that had health conditions and were concerned about the impact of COVID in theirs and their loved ones. Uh, We had people who, we've had teams in each of the countries that was going through peak crisis, Uh, the UK in the beginning, Portugal at some point, India, Brazil, so there wasn't a country that wasn't in the news having a major uh, crisis, that wasn't part, uh, we didn't have team members there. So being able to connect, show the empathy, give them the space, not let them fall into the traps of being always connected or always into the video, and caring about themselves, their families, their kids, understanding that that was okay, and that Um, I think that was the biggest uh, challenge from a managerial perspective is that suddenly, because you're not in a safe space of the office, but work and life have got together, Mm. you need to incorporate this into the way you work, act, decide, ask for things, expect people to to bring. And and the teams responded wonderfully. They've put a lot of effort. And actually, surprisingly, at least in Kaltura, the role of the senior management did not become one of making sure the teams keep doing their thing and pulling together even though they are at home was the opposite, was to pull the brakes, say, care for yourself. You don't need to be in Zoom meetings 14 hours. If you can't do this for tomorrow or the day after, that's okay. Ask for help, bring someone else like we're all in this together, it's a difficult period. So I think we felt a bit like Arctic explorers that if someone went on their own, they would not be seen again in the in the cold, but if you were together and you could burn some wood, things will work out. So I think that was super important. I think the rede- redefinition of the personal slash professional interaction through this medium and, and what's your role as a coach, a mentor, a senior manager uh, uh, with your teams um, in, in the business unit in general. Um, the third one for Kaltura, uh, this was in periods of great drama and personal cost always drive enormous changes. Some companies are uh, privileged to be in a position to capture, to be able to positively contribute to that change and capture value through that. So many others suffer, entire industries suffer the adverse effects. Kaltura was very privileged to be at the core, our three core businesses. Uh, cloud TV education, education, video and education and video and enterprise were essentially all deeply accelerated by by the needs that COVID generated. Uh, and we were privileged. The company has grown uh, almost 2x in uh, people, revenue, speed of growth during the last two years. Uh, that is part of the, what has contributed to such a successful uh, IPO just recently. Uh, and for us, it was a huge we're all at home. We need to hire more people than ever, train them faster. They've never been to an office. They don't know anyone. Half my team has never seen anyone else. They've all been hired and they're all spread around the world. How do you build the connections? How do you build the efficiency working, but also the empathy and the dedication that, that's necessary for uh, for things to uh, for things to uh, to 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 work and for the growth to be maintained. So so that was the biggest challenge. I think we responded uh, in a very uh, in a great way uh, that uh, and everyone showed their absolute best in this period. So so those those three dimensions are sort of when I think about the last eighteen months, they're what come to mind. They're deeply intertwined, mm-hmm. and it's going to be super exciting the world that's going to come out of this of this crisis. It's it's going to be so different than it would have been if it hadn't happened. It will have so many challenges and opportunities
0: to explore yeah i completely agree some, some great lessons there and I, I completely agree about some of the excitement for the future which uh which brings us nicely to that so uh, tim passing over to you for a few more questions around the future
2: yeah so obviously we've talked about you know the disruption and the things that's changed and the opportunities that that might bring up so where do you see the biggest potential for content consumption going forward
1: So I I think that the biggest unexplored potential, which doesn't mean it's the biggest in general because... user professionally generated content will continue uh, Hollywood style and now that pretty much yeah. anyone can do Hollywood style at very low cost of entry will continue to explode as we see niche content and we're very active in, in India for example and, and uh, India is an unbelievable market because you think about it as a country but you see, almost think about it as a planet in terms yeah. of the diversity it has inside and when you start looking now at content you see that the fragmentation of languages, cultures uh. uh, uh Uh, all of this plays into this rich array of offers of fragmented micro niche content that before could almost not be accessible to anyone beyond its immediate uh, target market and now suddenly can be can reach the country can reach the diaspora and can just become mass market for consumers that never thought about it so and we're seeing the same thing in with Nigerian content for example we're seeing the same thing with uh, multiple in countries like China where we have multiple ethnical identities of very large scale and, and all of this sort of we're, we're almost moving it's the the opposite effect that we had when the massification of the American culture mm. followed the, the advent of cinema and of World War II and now what we're seeing is the opposite is the massification of the massification of each individual culture. You, you you're individual, but you've become mass market. So Today you can enjoy an amazing uh, uh, film, uh, uh, Pakistani film in uh, in uh, uh, Netflix. You can see Casa de Papel, and you can see three other things. And half of your content you're watching is you can even see uh, drama from Iceland. I didn't know Iceland had had a, a movie industry. It was sort of counterintuitive, and you then see a show that. Leaves nothing uh, 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 like uh, uh, recently started Netflix. Name eludes me, but very good. There's volcano people come back from the net, go watch it. So. Uh... <laughs> And it's in Iceland, so. Uh, and the, but, there's not, but if
2: you search Iceland volcano back from the dead, there's not going to be many options. you will probably no, find I, it. I don't think. I
1: don't. Think. <laughs> and, and 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 if there is, if there are two, just click the one on Netflix because yeah. I'm not going to know what the other one is. So, um, but but the point being, so that that is exploding. I think that and that's the core driver of our core t- of our cloud TV business. That's the core of what we are essentially positioning ourselves as. If you have content, if you want to reach an audience there's no reason why you should be at a disadvantage in terms of the tech stack, the feature set, the capabilities, the monetization options versus the big players. So if you're producing Icelandic content and you want to distribute directly, we have the tools and the economic model to allow you to have the equivalent experience. And that's the whole value proposition Behind uh, cultural, a second element that is super important is everything that is UGC. So user-generated content keeps exploding, keeps getting into this professional space that's deeply captured by YouTube, uh, of course, but it, that it, it's having multiple spin-offs of integration where that experience is almost ubiquitous in multiple places. So I see that continue to to explode, and right now you have these gigantic subcategories like uh, gaming and like. Uh, 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 really, esports in general, which is a world in itself, but but there's so many. I think for me, the, the commercial power of the unpacking models. If you if you have young daughters and they're into the LOL dolls, you'll understand that the the value of of the it used to be it used to be a cartoon created a doll that created YouTube uh, uh, content, fan content, and now it's like fan content creates a physical product that might lead to a cartoon, and you're like, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's a product done for the unpacking experience. So all that, that connection and the role of video has the start point of a commercial experience and not a complement. I think is exceedingly powerful. But the most interesting element of all from a nascent perspective, I think, is what I go back to, it's the, the, the videofication of work. Hmm. The videofication of work is the least tapped of all of this because video was perceived, I don't know, it was perceived to be a second class, data type in in companies where uh, doing video was something that you'd never go to your company portal to do anything, and if you wanted to get trained, you wouldn't cross your mind to watch a video. And right now, we have people recording meetings, and uh, you find yourself, uh, I couldn't attend that session, I want to see it, I go there. Uh, And you find yourself that the physical event used to have 50 people hearing you speak, and now you can get 500,000. And and all of these things just... uh, 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 and. Going to the doctors through a video appointment was absolutely ridiculous. And the medical profession thought of this as close to blasphemous. And right now, in most countries in Europe, pretty much any primary care, the first interaction will be over video. And this will become the default. So this videification of this flow, when every conversation you have with the doctor will be recorded in absolute privacy, data mined, uh, and AI will be put on top of that when uh, your kid's feedback from school or the classes will be recorded, his interactions will be... will be uh, The fact that video materializes real life and real iterations, the fact that we can analyze that data through AI and, and through machine learning, and the fact that we can extrapolate data points from that is at zero, it's, at its absolute infancy. Just think about the potential and forgetting a bit the, the, the privacy thing that needs to be addressed, yeah. but. No worse than putting your uh, picture on Facebook, I would dare say. But if every class you've ever been to had been recorded and all of your interactions with a teacher had been recorded and everything you said, can you imagine the potential for a tutor or a mentor to to milk that information for, uh, um, so what do you do well? What do you improve? Why did you hesitate? Why did you go into this path, but did not commit to it? So the data that comes out of what we say and do is it can be will be captured in video at very low cost. So I think that videofication of uh, society, uh, of uh, work, of education, I think that's really the next big wave. And that's where uh, I, I do think that as we as we hit the public markets and as we see this enthusiasm from investors to be part of Cultura's journey, is they recognize that video is not a tool. Video is a completely new way of working that will revolutionize how many industries operate. Um and uh and again I think it's just starting. Mm,
2: yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um and, and one one final question sort of on on this point, because I think you cover quite a quite a nice range of things there. Maybe excluding, you know, the the challenges we've seen and and coming out the pandemic, you know, and the immediate aftershocks of that, and you know, the mixture of challenges and opportunities that will bring. What what do you see as the biggest challenge facing the industry right now?
1: It depends on which concrete industry uh, we're talking about, but let's talk about the the media and the professional TV, uh, the quality view, which is uh, the the core of the BU uh, that I run. I think the biggest challenge there um, is understanding the role of each of the agents and the players. So the industry structure is not settled. Um, will the, the business models that operate and the level of the level of uh, uh, it's not clear if a distributed, if it, if there's market potential for a distributed content model, where essentially you have many providers, Providing content directly to many customers, or if you're gonna get the re-aggregation of the intermediary, where you're gonna have half a dozen large aggregators, intermediaries who then intermediate the whole customer. I think that's open in the air. And that is at the most at most the same, the biggest risk and opportunity, because the winners and losers of each of these two configurations are dramatically different. So I think that's 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 the question that will shape the industry is. Can people be successful, can mid, small, mid, and even large, but not global content providers address, directly reach the customer successfully and profitable without having to be re-aggregated, as in the original days of pay TV? I still think that question is open. Super interesting data point that Netflix stopped growing. The fact that Netflix Mm. stopped growing, it literally puts into an upheaval all the projections about what the industry can be. The fact that you have now three, four players who could legitimately be at the equivalent scale in a couple of years starts to design, starts to make clear the winner takes all model doesn't exist. Yeah, it still has not eliminated the fact that you could go back to essentially it's a U.S. media company driven. Now they're half media, half tech, but a world where you have five giants who then consolidate everything, like back in the days of pay TV. Yeah. No. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see: will a new world emerge, or will the old world of content aggregation come back under a new uh, a banner of uh, VOD uh, and uh, uh, non-linear content? And oh, but but in the end, it's exactly the same thing as the pay TV in the 80s, in the way that the economic model of the bundles. Uh, so that's, I think, is the biggest is the biggest thing. I think, as a whole, for video, I think the biggest challenges for video will come from privacy. Um, I think that the, 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 the people, I don't think the full impact of the world of video fight world we live in, I don't think has been fully understood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that while we're starting to process the enormous implications of um, uh, fake news and of social media and of, so we started to grasp with personal exposure and you put your pictures your kid's picture and you get your drunken picture which sounds great at 14 not the best thing for a job interview at 28 yeah. and you start understanding uh, it it's yet acceptable now i never took my drunken pictures out of facebook so they're still there if someone doesn't want to hire me because of those that's okay i wouldn't <laughs> want to work there but i have that privilege to say that now i'm not sure if uh, uh, my 18 year old or 21 year old self would agree if you live today so but but we started to grasp with all that and regulation has come afterwards I think video is very different. Video is a reflection of real life, captured in real time, unfiltered, where pretty much all that information is there. Mm. So I think the issues around uh, privacy, the issues around, so is it okay to record? So simple things is, does an employer have the right to record a meeting like this? Yeah. That's like, we, literally someone pressed the record button on a meeting and made a decision that was acceptable by everyone while you're working from home and something can happen in the background. How does, so we, we've made these organic decisions like posting our first picture in Facebook without fully understanding the implications of that. So if tomorrow, because the data, tomorrow your employer can say, all Zoom meetings are recorded. Someone got fired in Slack from Netflix because they said some comments which were not they were just critical of management mm. in a Slack channel that they thought was private. And in fact, someone went in and read and they got fired. So I think this adding video because of the depth of information that's going and it explodes a number of things that can go wrong when you're in the background, when your life is happening in the background. When... So how does this whole privacy thing work? I think it's a huge uh, uh, challenge for the videoification of the world. The videoification of work the videofication of processes so and i don't think we've grasped the, the implications in culture we spend a lot of time thinking about this we spend a lot of time thinking about how can machine learning for example uh, and ai become not a tool for exposing your privacy but for protecting it yeah how can we say if something weird happens in the background can we just erase it from the video can we just uh, uh, can you just give people the option to control uh, to control their video feed in a point that they control the life cycle can we use uh, can we use uh, um, blockchain technology for example to make sure that when we're having this conversation your video feed is yours you control it you keep the rights to it like yeah. if it was a uh, uh, an NFT and you say, no, listen, if I, something happened that I don't want to be shared or recorded, you have the ability to correct it in the master, in the master distributed file where, so th- these are important topics that may not come today because we're all locked at home and privileged to be even talking to each other, but tomorrow they will come, yeah. uh, tomorrow they will come, and I think those are important uh, uh, discussions and probably the biggest challenge around, around video for the next decade to come
2: fantastic love now it's really good insights there and it's good yeah to see yeah both the the sort of like business model problem and then the technology problem and and, and how this it interacts so it's very interesting so we we've covered there sort of all things you know past present and future our next section is something that we you know all agree is something we'd like to address as, as much as possible with our guests and always sort of ask questions around and and that's diversity john Thanks, Tim. So,
0: yeah, I, I think we all agreed, um, Nuno, that within within the video industry, certainly, and in the wider tech industry, diversity is something that we that that we can all work on to improve. So, I was keen to, um, you know, to hear your thoughts on how we can improve diversity and inclusion.
1: Absolutely. So, Kaltura... Um, um, n- Since day one, the foundational principles of Kaltura and the vision were always very humanistic, the open, flexible, cooperative. And if you see any of the interactions that uh, both the founders have had in public and how the company projects its ethos, it's very focused on an element of deep respect for people that materializes in a huge commitment into diversity. Uh, Just the last time we were all together in a trade show in IBC, we launched uh, uh gender equality initiative that's been uh, uh, i would say a great example in the industry and we had many partners become part of uh we uh as a company i think what we have strive to create as a company other than let's put it there, there are 100 actions that you can put into place uh in the way you recruit the way you promote the way you review and i think that all of those um uh are under being tested for equality, fairness, and for and and every company is trying to find its formula. I do think in the end, this needs to be a a, a, a principle of the ethos of the company. If, if you if you make a pledge to diversity or if you make a pledge to equality, or even if if you may want to merge the identity of your company into a social cause you're passionate about, This needs to come from a genuine place in the people who are in positions of power of the organization. It cannot be a deliberate act to be part of a wave or to match the expectations of employees because it will always fall short. And I think what yeah. what, what happens in, 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 in Kaltura being a company that has included uh a, a woman founders has included its executive team, has always had a significant portion of uh, women that uh, uh, struggles uh, to, to make sure that we are uh, welcoming to every kind of uh, minority. You know, we're an Israeli company. We have a lot of Arab employees. We have employees of every religion you could imagine in the world. So we strive to make an effort to be uh uh equalitarian responsible and uh uh respectful of the enormous diversity that exists in our in our workplace um and, and there's a lot of mechanisms to try to enforce it i can't argue in favor or against because you'll find an article of why each of them has upsides and downsides i don't think we just, we found the but ultimately this is a shared value that we expect to have in all the people we bring in, particularly in positions of power. It's something we—it's uh, something that's part of the core base principles, at the equivalent importance to your performance or how you uh, individually or as a manager—and and that reflects in the way you work on an everyday basis. Uh, and I have to say, from from the feedback we're getting from from teams and from the teams and from the people we onboard, we're quite successful at it. And and I think the major metric of success. Is that people feel comfortable without actually having to be exposed? And I think that's always the risk of uh, any equality measure is if you feel like your success and you're singled out and you're being taken care of because you're part that has a result of such an effort, it feels like it devalues you as a person. Mm-hmm. If it's part of the culture where you are, it feels like you're in a place that respects you for your individuality, and that's what we strive to be. Um, and, uh, and, and I do think that in general, most of the companies, particularly startups and uh, companies that I engage with, um, I, I see that this is becoming the default operating model. And, and today yeah. when people join a company, they actively look and make questions about this. They look yeah. for reinforcing data points. And I think that's how the correction will happen is when talent decides where they wanna be, they wanna be an inclusive, respectful, places that respect you as an individual for your gender sexual orientation family structure uh, uh, work-life balance needs anything uh, social causes political affiliation but you feel respected respected and that your needs are accommodated within within the organization and and uh, I'm quite confident that has a tech' uh, uh, the tech world's getting there and that cultura, is uh, in its own scale doing
0: what it can to contribute yeah great advice and i i completely agree i think you know it's all well and good having data points measuring quotas all those sorts of things but as you say if it doesn't come from a genuine place, and it doesn't come from the leaders of an organisation. It's um, it, it's very difficult to to achieve long term success. So some some great advice there. Um, so we've learned lots about your career and got some fantastic insights. But um, we always like to learn a little bit more about the individual that we're uh, that we're speaking to. So back over to Tim.
2: Yeah. So uh, so something a bit more personal, a bit more a bit more sort of uh, fun i can, can can risk fun um what would be you know um logistical um uh, issues not uh, notwithstanding what would be your perfect weekend if you had all the choices what would be your perfect weekend
1: my i i'm very uh, as much as i love getting into a plane and going to someplace exotic my perfect weekend today is no different from what my perfect weekend was when i was 5, 15, 25, and 35. Uh, And now that I'm almost 45, it's not much different. I come from the south of Portugal, from a small town called Vila Real that has a beach that's called Montgord, And in that beach, friends and family have congregated for more than a century now. Hmm. Uh, and, And it's a place where if you go, you know the people who are dear to you will be there. And you know that you'll be able to relax, enjoy, and spend time with them. And, and my definition of what a perfect weekend is, it's been the same throughout the years. is to stay, to get there, to put my towel in the sand, to see people I don't see every day walking past. To talk to them by the sea, to grab a beer in the bar behind with them, to randomly bump into someone at night in that small place and just uh, agree to have a dinner out. And then every corner you turn to see people that are have meant something in your life, that have been your friends, friends of your parents, references at some point, see your kids playing with their kids. Uh, And in a world where we're always in a plane that we've lived in multiple countries, and that we have friends from all over and that life is everything we life is so fast and transient, Hmm. being able to go back to that place and have those same references and make sure that my kids uh, enjoy it as I did and build the same kind of roots is the definition of a perfect weekend.
2: Yeah. And to have that consistency and that anchor and yeah, that things are come back to you. That's really nice. That's really nice. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that. Um, So let's go straight into the quick fire round.
0: All right. Very good. So we just got a few questions here, Nuno, and you go uh, answer as quickly as you can without thinking too much. First one's a bit of a loaded one. We're, we're pretty much out of lockdowns and let's hope that we don't go back into them. So first one, triumph during the lockdowns or failed during the lockdowns? Oh, triumph, my cooking skills. I took my cooking skills to a completely different level, and I invested the
1: number of hours that I bought every gadget that you could for cooking. And right now, if it's not smoked, sous vide, slow cooked, I don't even try it. So, so that's my big <laughs> lockdown success. <My> big, <laughs> I think my big lockdown uh, failure is clearly trying to exercise. Uh, when I was locked down at home, I said, I'm absolutely, this is the moment. Like, I know I'm going to not be walking around so much and doing this. And uh, yeah, and that didn't become much more than manifesto of intentions. Although I do think that the time I am standing and I'm stirring the pot while cooking
0: sort of counts a little bit like that.
2: Whisking, but whisking is good. Is good. <laughs> very good,
0: very good. Um, I think I probably know the answer to this one, but if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Wow, that's that's
1: a difficult one for me because my heart is split between the three places I've lived in my life. I'm I'm a natural optimist and I really enjoy whatever I'm living now. So um, I've lived in three cities in in my life. Well, four, but I lived in three countries, four cities. Uh, I lived in Lisbon for a significant part of my life. I lived in Boston uh, when I was studying in the U.S. and I've lived in London. And I have to say, out of every city I've visited in the world, I keep coming back to these three as the reference. Um, Boston is a fantastic place to know some of the most interesting people in the world and to be, to experience uh, uh, the, I would say the perfect mixed mix of Americana and European-ish kind of life. Uh, and uh, it's a place I've built great friends for life and that I absolutely love to go back over and over. Um, London is for me the perfect cosmopolitan city, above New York, above Paris, cities that I love, but London just offers, it blows my mind every time. It's it's a city that has no limits, and I like to explore to the maximum. And Lisbon has the perfect balance of how easy life is, and how much you can do. It's beautiful, it gives you access to the beach, it's easy to navigate, it's easy to get around. So I, I, I don't see myself as settling into one place, uh, but I do think that the triangle of these three cities will keep defining where I am in the world for the foreseeable future.
0: All right, very good, very good.
1: Uh, what makes you
0: laugh most? Laugh? Yes.
1: Oh, almost everything. So my kid sits down and starts telling dry jokes. And he starts there's they're not funny at all but the way he looks when saying them and his expectation of the feedback of like eh, I don't know that makes me laugh all the time um no honestly a lot of things make me laugh i'm an easy laugh uh, i'm an easy laugh i uh, i like to laugh of myself i like to laugh of my own failures i like to laugh when i become too much of a caricatural version of myself uh and when i go overboard so um I like to laugh when I was obviously wrong and I was caught uh, in the middle of that. So a lot of things make me laugh, thankfully.
0: Very good, very good. And uh, if you had to, what would you sing at a karaoke night?
1: Oh, New York, New York. That's no... And, and I do it. It's not if I had to. I do it. I do it. <laughs> uh, so,
0: very good. Uh, very
2: regardless good. if there's a karaoke night on, you'll just stand up and start.
0: I will. Yeah, that has to <laughs> Fabulous. And last one from me. Um, uh, if you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? I can't answer that question. I can't even. I
1: can't even have the same meal two days in a row. So <laughs> I, 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 I don't. So, so I'll tell you what it is. What it is. My father used to have some fishing boats in the in the south, and I grew up eating uh, seafood. Uh, um, and when I was a kid, we would have these big plates of seafood that would come from the from from the the fishermen would just bring them in boxes. And as a kid, I would eat it like if the world was gonna end. And when I grew up, I started to understand that it was actually not normal to have that much seafood because you actually. Uh, you had to buy it in a restaurant so and since then my place of seafood have been as i grew older uh, uh, uh my plates of seafood have been short so if i had to eat only one thing for the rest of my life i do think it would be portuguese seafood from the portuguese coast cooked in water and salt and nothing more uh, but i'm cheating a bit because i would eat of everything not just one thing
0: <laughs> very good very good i'm salivating and it's healthy and it's healthy I'm salivating at the prospect. It sounds absolutely delicious. Well, listen, thank you very much for all of that. So just passing over to Tim for our final question.
2: Yeah, so I guess final question is is always the same. Um, What one piece of advice would you give to someone entering the industry today?
1: So that's a good question because I think it would be different now in a post-pandemic world than it would be in uh, before. Mm -hmm. So I think the first question is, don't the, the the advice would be don't take the benefits of the digital world as the unique way to operate. Hmm. Because in this industry, like in most industries, the relationships you build with people are the key element for your success. They could be as employers, employees, as partners, as customers, as suppliers, but you my career in this industry has been defined by trusting and building trust in people who either had or rose to have relevant roles in shaping the the fate of the industry. Mm. Those relationships were built over meeting rooms, but they were built around laughs, they were built around, uh, they were not built around the negotiation or the content or the product characteristics or the, they were built about the unstructured conversations, the vision, the personal histories, the, the connection. Building those connections, if you're entering that this industry or any job uh, industry right now, it's too easy to stay home uh, in a screen or go to Bali or go to the beach and have this vision of, if I work with a screen, I can work. Work is not working. Work is building connections with people that will be the ones that pull you up as they grow themselves. And I cannot believe that those relationships can be built purely on a digital remote world. So my advice is, meet people sit down for lunch with them take the effort of picking up the car getting into a plane uh, just make sure you keep you invest the time to do the thing that matters which is to build this relationship that's going to shape your whole future your career and will help you grow as a person
0: fantastic thank you so much um Nuno we really appreciate you joining us on the show Uh, some fantastic fantastic and some great lessons so thank you very much for joining us John, so Tim, it's been a pleasure. Thank you and thank you to everyone at NUCO.
1: Uh, best of luck to all of you guys.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about NUCO, we can be found at www.meuco-group.com. You've been listening to The Tech That Connects Us.